Welcome to the Small Talk Podcast. Today, we have a special guest speaker, Eva Gomez, who is a Senior Professional Development Specialist at Computer Informatics and Education Department. Today, um, Eva is going to talk to us uh, on the topic of health literacy. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be in such a great and distinguished podcast. So thank you to all the listeners out there. I'm so excited to be here. And um, I'm excited because this is a passion topic of mine. Um, in addition to the work that I do at Boston Children's as a senior professional development specialist, I also am a graduate student. I'm getting my PhD in nursing with a focus on population health. And my population are people who have a limited ability to speak English. And then my also my sec- my passion right along with that one is um, health literacy. And so why health literacy? Why is health literacy a big deal? So I want to put it in perspective for all of our listeners. You know, y'all are nurses and those of you may be aspiring nurses as well. We spend a lot of our day talking to people and a lot of the conversations that we have it has to do with teachings and think about the families that you care for every day. A lot of the, the things that we have to explain and, and help patients understand is very much education for them, right? And that we only think of education as something that happens as we get patients ready for discharge. But in fact, education happens all across the um, the hospitalization. And, and for those of you who work in ambulatory settings or procedure areas, you're still constantly doing education. So what is personal health literacy? So it's the degree to which individuals have the ability to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions for themselves or for other people. As I said, reading is just one component. Comprehending the information is another. Making a decision is another. And and getting the right outcome is another. So health literacy is, is a group of actions that take place. And so when we provide information to patients, that is just one step towards achieving patient goals. And so we really need to be aware about how we go about teaching patients. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But I would like to kind of share with you a little bit about red flags for low health literacy, because perhaps you don't realize there are actually some things that 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 happen with patients that can tell you that maybe something is not quite right. Missed appointments is one of them. So those of you who work in ambulatory, if patients are missing appointments, there may be many reasons for patients missing appointment, but but low low health literacy could be one of them. Incomplete registration forms, if patients don't fill out the the forms in your um, uh, practice completely, what we called non-compliance, and you know, we we hear this word a lot. You know, patient is not complying with treatment, and and I like to believe that patients don't set out to not follow the treatment. Is sometimes it's difficulty understanding the treatment, right? Another one is not being able to name their medications or explain what they do. So sometimes if you talk to patients that have a lot of medications, they may not be able to tell you like this pink pill is for this, the other pill is for that. And in fact, they have to look at the pills themselves uh, to identify the medication as opposed to reading the label on the bottle. That also is, is another flag that something might not be quite right. Being able to give you their health history or the health history of that person that they're advocating for, in our case, the parents or caregivers are not able to truly go through sequentially detailed information. Those families that ask fewer questions, typically, you may think that there could be something they're not understanding. And then last but not least, the follow through on tests or referrals. Sometimes 
families get referred or patients get referred to another test or another clinician, and perhaps that doesn't happen. Those are things, again, that may not necessarily be that they have low health literacy, but are things to pay attention to that can give you a clue that something may be amiss. Eva, I have a question for you. I'm thinking, you know, from the perspective of whether I'm in a clinic or whether I'm an inpatient unit or in the emergency room. But my question is about assessing, you know, in the healthcare right now, we're in a very rushed environment. Are there any tools or any questions? Where can a nurse start with assessing if you see some of the signs and you're questioning issues with health literacy? Where would you suggest people go? So that's a really great question, because how do I know Oh, how do I know um, patients are having difficulty, you know, with health literacy? And um, the University of Arkansas Medical Center, Medical Sciences, has a center for health literacy. They've uh, basically taken up all the research that has been done out there in terms of screening questions. And um, there is one screening question where the, the, the researchers have found that is a best indicator of how, um, what the level of health literacy is for, for a person. And the question is, how confident are you filling out medical forms by yourself? And the, you know, they can tell you from one through five, very comfortable to not comfortable at all. But it's interesting because if you think about what it takes for someone to fill out medical forms by themselves, there's a lot that is taking place. The person has to first be able to read, Next, they need to be able to understand what the question is asking them, and they need to formulate an answer and respond. So those three steps sounds very simplistic, but they're very three concrete tasks that patients need to do. And if they have difficulty filling medical forms by themselves, and they require assistance from a friend, from a neighbor, from a relative, that that can be a good indicator of the level of health literacy. There are also other screening questions um, that are available, um, but, but to make it really simple and straightforward, that is one question that you can ask to get get a sense of how easy or how difficult it is. Because once you know that, let's say a caregiver tells you, yes, I have a lot of difficulty filling out medical forms and I always have to get help, then now that's a cue to you that as you explain things and as you educate them, you have to do certain strategies that we'll go over in a little while to to make sure that they truly understand the education that you're giving them. Eva, I'm just curious, how do you incorporate how we are learning into teaching. I, I just think of myself as a, a pretty distracted individual. It's very easy for me to go look at someone and then like, oh, squirrel, whatever. And I think things like TikTok and how we're getting our information in these small chunks are easily digestible. And when you're getting health information, I feel like, you know, in addition to reading and writing, it's that comprehension of the information that's actually given to you. How do you incorporate this from a distraction perspective? Well, that's a really good question. I think there's something called universal health literacy precautions and the agency for healthcare research and quality kind of has that out there as a resource, but, but it's important to think about the, the person that you're working with in the environment that you're working with. Um, let me give you an example. You are on a pediatric unit or you're um, in a clinic that, let me just put it like on, on a unit, like on the floor in, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of people coming in and out of the room. There are siblings running around the room. Cause I've been in that situation too. And we try to go to the bedside with the patient right in front of them and the baby's moving or fussing and, and you're trying to do your education right at the bedside. And sometimes you need the patient there, by the way. So it's really important to, to set the stage 
for educating families, especially if it's complex information. So many times you have to figure out a way where, for instance, you can get the, the caregiver in a quiet room with very little distractions. I personally feel that images are very important. Um, back in the old days when I used to do patient education, I used to carry this, this big book with uh, anatomy pictures. And the way I used to teach patients about their health conditions is I would start out by actually teaching them how the body normally works. And I would show them pictures. That's how I did it. Because if you think about most of our patients, they know kidneys, they know heart, but do they really know how they work? And so I find that that was a strategy that was really helpful because once I was able to explain to them, okay, this is what it looks like. This is how it normally works. And you're in a quiet space with little interruptions. Then you can carry on to the next stage of teaching, which is this is this is what the problem is right now. And whatever treatment may be, this is how the treatment's helping. So I know we're trying to, to your question was more around the attention span. So the most important thing is have a quiet setup eliminate all possible distractions. If if the patient, you, if you don't need the patient to do the education, for instance, if it's not something surgical like a G-tube that you need the patient there. But if you don't need the patient physically in the room, try to get the parents and caregivers to sit in a quiet space. And one thing I, we were, we were um, also mentioning is the fact that many times caregivers have questions and things on their mind that's weighing their mind. And if they don't talk to you about them before you start teaching them, while you're doing all your awesome teaching and education, they're going to be sitting there thinking about all this thing that is in on their mind that's bothering them. So whenever you have to uh, do education, it's always good to start by asking them, how are you doing? How are things? What's on your mind? What have you been worried about lately? And try to to either address those concerns and help them ease their mind about things so that when you do start teaching with them, their mind is truly present in the moment with you. That I, I think of it as a clean slate. Like if they don't have anything on it and they're not worried about something, then they can truly pay attention to you, to what you're teaching. So so those are a few trips uh, and tricks that, that I can offer in terms of helping the caregiver or the learner that you're teaching focus on what they need to, to learn. Yeah, that, those are really great tips. Uh, I love the yeah. fact that you use images to help that. Right. And I, I also wanted to add really quick that it's impossible as a nurse to gauge in the moment who is a visual learner versus an auditory learner versus a doing learner. So so you have to try to cover all your bases if depending on the content that you have to include. In today's world, we're so fortunate to have phones and tablets that you can actually have videos of things, which even are even better. So so yes, try to think about all the different ways in which people learn so that you can touch on all of them and make sure that the you you hit one of those many targets. It's interesting about the video. Five years ago versus now, you the five minute video would not be a problem to have someone sit down and watch. And now people get distracted, hence this question, after like 30 seconds. It's really interesting to me how we've, we've shifted of how we learn. And we as clinicians have to create content that is digestible for the families, which I think adds a layer onto the health literacy that you speak of. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you have a great point, Kate, and you mentioned it too as as well, Eva, about giving the education in chunks. And you made me uh, really reflect on some of the education I've done over the years and think about how like I have my own agenda when I go in here. 
I just got handed the discharge orders and the discharge instructions and I have my agenda and I'm looking at my watch. I've got 10 minutes to deliver this before I need to hang an antibiotic or, you know, something else is happening. And it just made me think it's when you're going in um, and assessing and providing education, it's more asking, let's talk about your questions. Let's talk about, let's make this about you, you know, starting off with. So tell me what questions you have for me before we even get into talking about these discharge instructions. Right, because that's going to help offload. It's like the cognitive load. I'm worried about this. And until I talk about it with someone, I'm not going to let it go of my brain. But if somebody talks to me about it and gets it out of the way, then 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 I can now learn stuff. So that's really important. And and Teresa, you said something that I want to go back on the making breaking it up into small chunks. It goes also back to what Kate was saying about confirming that the, the person is following you. So so if you say, okay. Let first let's going to talk about medications and you dedicate that time with medications before you go on to the other things that you have to teach the patient, do a quick check-in as you're teaching the medication. So let's go. Now that I've told you all about these medicines, can you, can you remember, can you show me, or can you, can you show me how you draw up this medication? Or can you tell me how many times a day you're going to do it? Just kind of quick, quick confirming and, and people feel uncomfortable about you know, asking families to tell back the information or to teach back the information because they feel like they're going to insult them. But I think it's really important. And if you present it in the right way, if you say to a family, I want to make sure that you really got what I was saying. So if you were going to tell a relative at home how to do this, can you can you show me how you would tell them? And that way, it's making it in the position of you are going to be teaching somebody else. So tell me how you would do it. And that's a way that you can confirm learning too in, in small chunks, in, in, in separate pieces so that they can take it one by one. Yeah. Like creating that safety for sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like giving like a little bit of information and then asking a question. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You, you want to do like little checkpoints, your teaching checkpoints, make sure that before you move on to more information, because remember, if you don't double check that family or that person understood you for the first 10 minutes of talking, they can have question. And, and in fact, if you think about what we just said about cognitive load, if I didn't understand this thing about the medication and you didn't ask me if I had questions, now we're moving on to the section about the dressing change. And I still have a question about the medicine. And by the time we're done covering all of the topics, I'm going to forget that I had a question about the medication and I went home and I never really asked you what that was. The reading and writing thing is actually interesting to me too. Uh, I'm just going back thinking of a story. My mom was a teacher for um, kids with learning disabilities. And one of her students actually overdosed because he knew the letter R and he knew the medication was in a bottle that said R. But he had two next to him. His mom got medications and he took the wrong one and he overdosed. Right. Reading and writing, it's something we don't think happens. He got to the 12th grade without being able to read and write before my mom identified that. This is some of the patient population that we're dealing with. And I'm just curious how we approach that patient population. I'm so glad you bring that up because it's such a sensitive topic and not many people talk about their ability to read. And um, it's very shaming for people to talk about their ability to read. So I have a friend who is a clinician, does not work at Children's, and she taught me something. And I don't know how 
I, I mean, I want to put it out there, but you know, because I want, I, I want to kind of tell you her, her technique. Sometimes when she approaches patients and she's not really sure whether they can read, she would hand them a piece of paper and it would sort of hand it over to them. You know, if you have a piece of paper in front of you, that's right side up. If you hand it directly to the person without turning it around, if the person is able to read, you would notice that they turn it right side up too. And uh, she's noticed that sometimes if she hands a piece of paper that is upside down, if the person doesn't turn it around, that's a sign. So so it's it's really important, but we have to create safety around this. So the way I would approach it is, for instance, let, let's talk about um, patient education sheets because they are very often the things that we hand to patients, right? Let me start by saying, you should never just hand a piece of paper to a patient and walk away. That's just not good education. That's not education, period. Handing them a piece of paper about the procedure they're about to have and saying, you know, you can read more about it here. That That's not creating education. When you do education is that perhaps you yourself hold the piece of paper and you go over it with the person. I'd like to say to patients, look, I know these, these sheets have a lot of words. Is this easy for you to read or do you feel like you need a little help with someone helping you read through them? Kind of and, and just kind of say, you know, it's okay because we know this is really complex, but we want to create safety around patients disclosing their ability to read. And sometimes it's it's hard to say, so can you read? And people are gonna say, Of course I can read. You know, that's not that's not a comfortable question to answer. So create safety, offer up the document and just kind of say, Is is this easy for you to read, or would you rather me explain it to you and and see how how far you can get? Because it's it's very tricky and and we don't we, we don't want to break the trust with families i think it's it's important to talk about those things as well that's great that really gave some tools which is really cool i can i can add one more thing about the the learning disability stuff i think it's also important for us to understand that even when people don't have language barriers because i that's been my population always that there is a possibility that they have those difficulty reading labels and understanding labels so it is really important to hold the person's hand literally and say okay so tell me how can you tell this is the medication you're supposed to take and can you show me and i actually have a recommendation around that when i worked with families who i knew could not read or very limited ability to read color coding systems and taping. I remember literally taking syringes and Sharpies and cardboard pieces. And so I would take a syringe, I would take tape, I would take a Sharpie and I would tape the syringe to the cardboard. I would secure it with tape so it wouldn't um, you know, move. I would mark with a Sharpie you know, to this line and then on the paper itself say, you know, the Jackson morning and night to here. And I would I would use those strategies of of using tools to teach the patients and also color coded like if the medication you said Kate you were talking about your your mom student that the medication started with an R can they color code the bottle a certain color with a marker so that you know that that this medication with a green highlighter is the medication that you take at this time of the day and the other medication with the pink highlighter gets done at a different time. 
time of the day. Because I think that whenever people are not able to read, we have to use other tools to make sure that guides them into doing the right thing. Again, people, we all make assumptions about how people's abilities are, but we really got to get into talking to them about how they recognize and take their medication because medication errors are a huge source of uh, problem for people who have health literacy. You bring up such a great point. And for me, it kind of showcases this marriage between art and science, how I can put logos in front of people that might not be able to read well, and they can identify what those are, whether it be a stop sign while driving, whether it be a Coca-Cola label without actually the lettering on it. It showcases how important illustration is when you're doing education like that as well. So to combine that, as you mentioned, with telecoding things and doing something like that, that's such great tips. Yes, we got to get creative with the way we educate patients. Um, But again, in order to get to the point of getting being creative, we have to have conversations with the patients and their caregivers. And when I say conversations, get them to talk to us and give us a little piece of their world because I can walk into a patient's room and have a one-way conversation with a family and they nod their head and say yes, and they have no questions. But if I don't get to know a little bit about how do you normally give your child medication at home? How do you learn um, which medications have to be done? Like you need to ask these little questions too, so that especially if you have a child with complex um, medical conditions that require more than one medication, you you really need to kind of get to know the family, their needs so that you can best teach them effectively. I think this starts also with that pause you mentioned about what's heavy on your mind at that point. And I think Tracy, you can speak to this and I can speak to the patients that I've taken care of is I've had patients that were so focused on discharge and getting out and getting out of the Boston traffic that yeah. they just wanted to leave. And no matter what you said, they were just like, okay, I'll just take the paper and leave. So that pause to say, we really need to get this information to you, just, just taking that step. Yeah, and even questioning, is this going to work for you? Do you think this is going to work for you? Not only, you know, do you understand you need to take this medicine three times a day and it's for X, it's taking it to the ne- next level to assess their understanding of why or what would be doable, like understanding, well, you're going to give it three times a day, but what are some other ways you could do it that would fit fit their needs? And bottom line, do they understand? You know, do they understand? I know it, it, this is such a challenge. This is really great. I, I almost like I was listening to you, Eva, saying it'd almost be cool to have like an algorithm for nurses, like you know. Um, and I'm not sure, maybe one exists with health literacy, and, and and this is so tied in. I mean, you can have somebody that they read, but they may not, they don't comprehend the medical world. Like you were saying, bringing out like uh, visuals. You know, you can have somebody that is like a real, a techie person, like somebody that technology is their thing, but medicine is a a total different language for them. But I almost think about, I visualize having almost like an algorithm for nurses. Like, you know, you start with the, you know, that you said the question from the University of Arkansas, like how confident you, uh, how confident you about filling out medical forms by yourself. You almost could have pathways to make it easier for nurses to be able to learn strategies for assessing health literacy and then next steps. If you go down this pathway, uh, like what are other questions yeah, you know, that's, to, to make sure they're getting it? That's an awesome research project, Teresa. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a oh, great research project. Yeah. So, you Eva, know, we talked a lot about health literacy for people, English speaking people. What do you have to add for patients that might not speak the language? Right. 
So, so it's really important. Language barriers. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I was educator to Spanish speaking patients is that the language barrier really keeps, it's almost like a glass wall between the, the clinicians and the patients. Because that barrier is there, clinicians don't really have an opportunity to assess the abilities or the health literacy of the patient. And um, I'll never forget the story. It's actually a very interesting story. I, I work with a Mexican mom who migrated to the U.S. and this was in North Carolina. And um, the, her child, unfortunately, had a very significant event at birth, which led him to have uh, a tracheostomy and a feeding tube. But everyone had an assumption. This mom was a migrant that she did not speak English. And, and, and I want to be honest without sounding like I'm being harsh on people, but, but typically people were not expecting a lot from him. Let me just put it that way. The, the nurses that I work with in that hospital didn't think of ex- the, the capacity that this mother would bring to the table. And over time, education happened around trach and G-tube care every day, every day, every day. And the nurses kind of came around and say, wow, that mom is really, really smart and really talented and she could do this. And I said, yes, you know, the, the language barrier kept, unfortunately, that separation that, that you guys weren't able to see how talented and capable she was. And so I'd love to, to show that as an example, because it's part of getting to know the patient. Sometimes many patients who don't speak English are indeed limited in their ability to, to comprehend information, their ability to read. Um, others don't. So, so here the trick is that you really have to, again, make that time to get to know them and give them opportunities for them to show you their abilities so that you can truly I get a sense of how well they can do, especially when you have to do education around concrete things like uh, G-tubes, dressings, uh, uh, trade care, because once you start demonstrating those things to the families, they may not be able to talk to you in English, but the, the demonstration piece is really what tells you that they're truly following what you're saying. You have to use interpreters. There's very little room here. Um, you cannot just get by. Um, many times people say to me, oh, but the dad speaks English. Well, it's not fair to the dad to do education to so that he educates the, the, the other family member or the mother, whoever speaks English. It's not fair to them for two reasons. Number one, because there's an emotional log of the load of them processing the information because they also have to know this and, and to translate it forward to the to the person next to them is difficult. And also that as a non-English speaker, the clinician may not know how well this person is truly understanding what you're saying and explaining it forward. So it's, again, very much a, a position of planning ahead of time, knowing what you're going to teach the family and try to get as far away. F- like if you know discharge is happening on Friday, start doing this on Monday so that the families can have time to process the education. And based on the techniques that you use to teaching them, you can come back and ask them again and reassess their level of learning and always having an interpreter present. But I do not recommend that clinicians use uh, another family member to do education when you're having to teach because you're kind of putting a huge responsibility on the shoulders of that person that they need to, they may be explaining things. And I've seen it happen over and over again. Um, A family member or a caregiver gets asked to translate for another family member when the clinician is doing teaching or not just because the person did not know the language, simply because they did not understand it well themselves. And so it's really important to consider those pieces when you're working with families that have a limited ability to speak English. 
talk about the interpreters for a second. Do you have tips for us to have an interpreter in the I've been in rooms with physicians, this is an example, where they will throw out two paragraphs of information that it's really, in my opinion, hard for the interpreter to stop, interpret that, and then send it to the family and they get feedback. Is there, there are tips to say, like, okay, two lines, pause, have them say two lines, pause? Yes, yes. And, that, and that's one of them, in fact. So if you want your information to be interpreted as clearly and effectively as possible, you need to break everything up into small chunks. I sometimes will go maybe a couple of sentences like tomorrow, the child's not going to have anything to eat before the operation. And then you will arrive at the hospital at 6am. Do it in smaller pieces because remember interpreters have a cognitive load of their own. If you go on for three whole paragraphs, how much can that interpreter retain? And think about, I think you may know this, you know, like you can only hold seven pieces of information at a time in your brain. I think I've heard that before. So, so think about interpreters. If, if a clinician is, is giving a ton of information without giving a pause for the interpreter um, to speak, there's some things likely to not, you know, to fall off the plate. So it's really important to do that. Make sure that when you are talking to the person, to the, the patient you're educating, make eye contact with them. And also keep an eye on their face as the interpreter repeats the information you just said. Because I learned this from an interpreter a couple of years ago. When you are speaking and the interpreter is listening, you know, the families are not understanding what's happening. When the families really understand what's taking place is when the interpreter is telling them. So watch their facial expressions and body language when the interpreter is telling them the information, because that's going to be a way in which you can abstract, uh, you know, what's happening on their mind as, as they're hearing the information. I would always say make time, um, have a quiet space, just like we were saying in the other um, in the other cases. And again, start out by asking them what's on their mind, because here's the difference between English speaking and non-English speaking families. English-speaking families can ask questions any time of the day or night. They can give it to someone and someone can go and find the answer for them. People, Families who don't speak English only have one or two opportunities per day to ask their questions when the interpreter is brought in front of them. The rest of the time, they have to sit there with that concern. And so all the more important to make time prior to teaching those families so that they can offload their mind of the things that worry them so they can be ready for education when you're when you're teaching them. I like I like to take that empathetic lens on this too, to think of yourself, maybe you were traveling and you ended up in a hospital in another country that didn't speak English and what that experience would be like for you. Uh, people travel from all over the world to get the best treatment at Boston Children's and they don't speak English and this is why they're here. So yeah. And, and to add extend to that empathy, I think it's really important for us to to realize as, as nurses, especially that our shifts are 12 hour shifts. We work three days. Maybe we don't work three days in a row, but there's a variety of, of staff coming by to take care of these patients. I remember one time I this is in a different hospital, but I I ran into a mother who perhaps hadn't had an opportunity to go get some who had who did not leave her room to go get something to eat because she did not know where the cafeteria was. And so sometimes we, we, you know, we, we forget that, that the parents and the family members who don't have an ability to speak English literally sometimes don't know how to get out of the room. I knew one mother who was a indigenous woman who came from a very rural area in Central America to that hospital. 
she didn't even know how to recognize the numbers on the elevator. So she would never leave the room because she was afraid she'd get lost and never find her way back. It's those little things that we're not aware of that we take for granted, but but for people who don't speak English and have a limited ability to read too, it's it, it means the difference between getting something to eat now and 24 hours later. I know, I guess I, I'm listening to it, the, the stories that you both have just told. I'm like, it's almost like you have to figure out how to empower the family and the patients to speak up and ask questions. You know, it's difficult because in many cultures around the world, and I know this crosses beyond health literacy, but I'll, I'll, I want to do talk about that. You know, the healthcare system in our in our in our country in the United States, um, it's very empowering to the patient. But in other countries, it is not. Um, many, especially my experience uh, working with Latin American uh, families, you know, um, there's the, the the doctor, the clinicians, the people are in charge and, and you're you're not allowed to question. It's not culturally OK for for you to question the decisions of the doctors because they and the nurses and the clinicians, especially here in Boston, because we are this hospital and we are very educated. And if patients are not. Um, given, you know, they, they, they don't, they don't see how they can contradict the clinicians and they, they feel very, like it would be not appropriate for them to do that. So you're right. It's educating them, but it's still very much out of their comfort zone. It may not happen overnight. So it takes a little time to get them used to that. I think going back to the empathy uh, piece of this is you also have to realize that we're teaching people at really a hard, difficult, stressful time. I know we, everyone sitting at the table here, we can speak about when the diagnosis comes about one of our family members or ourselves, how difficult it is to navigate those waters as people in the field. So we have a little bit of knowledge, but a lot of people come to the table with no knowledge, but they can you know, build a robot or something. So it's, it's really taking that into consideration as well. Right. Right. And, it, you know, I just went through this this summer. My my younger brother had open heart surgery, the same one that I had 10 years ago. All of a sudden, I'm in the role of helping him kind of navigate all through his medications and his documents and his paperwork. And just the stress of having someone in such sick condition near you, it changes your mind frame. It's you're not you're not able to think as clearly and linearly as you do when you are in a clinician role. It's like having either being sick yourself or having a loved one being sick, it does mess with your mind a little bit. You're not in that empowered position anymore. You're you're having to manage so many moving parts for that sick person that it's it's difficult to to manage all of it. So it, it, there's a certain state of mind that comes with having a sick child or a sick family member and having to take care of them and being responsible for everything else that goes with it. There are so many moving parts and like your experience, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, how overwhelming it must be when people either have language barriers or like reading um, barriers for their literacy um, and understanding us because the moving parts a lot of times are the clinicians, they're us, you have social work, you have different residents or uh, as you pointed out, we, we don't work like Monday through Friday, you, you have different nurses every shift every day feeding into what, you know, the information that's being given to people. Definitely a challenge when you either have a language barrier or a reading barrier to understanding the, the plan or your diagnosis or your medications. There's just so many things that factor into it that generally falls back on nursing to make sure before that person leaves the clinic appointment or leaves the patients being discharged out the door that we're ultimately responsible 
um, for assuring the patient does understand the plan of care or the um, medications that we're, we're sending them off with. What do you have to say about external influences? So, I mean, I think we've probably experienced this where you have a child that goes home and comes back, they're back for whatever reason. Like, well, my mother told me I didn't have to take that medication because she read an article that whatever, everyone's becoming an armchair expert of sorts. So I'm just curious of how you approach that and how that um, compounds the challenge of health literacy. Right. So fortunately, I think in pediatrics, we're very lucky that I would say that the large majority of patients and parents and caregivers, I feel as though they they understand the need to provide the prescribed care, especially when it's a complex, you know, very deep condition, like, you know, oncology patient or, or neurology condition. It's funny because you're right, Kate, we're coming into an age where now everybody's becoming their own health, health expert. And my, my experience with patients has always been that they sought to, they looked to us for, for information and relied on and trusted us. And, And now there are people that are questioning medical advice that is based on scientific evidence. Those families, I I haven't had a lot of experience working with those families, but I I can tell you this much from what I've read and heard from many experts, especially around this time where people are questioning the effectiveness of the vaccine. I think, um, I think it's important to, to first of all, approach the conversation in a calm, collected, almost like de-escalation technique type of way. I think it's important to listen to their point of view and what their fears are, what what they've read and what source they got it from and and try to put your point of view forward. People respond negatively when they're feeling like they're being judged and and behaving or as a healthcare provider if you if your conversation makes a person feel like they're sounding like they're insane or crazy, that that's just going to turn them on against you even more. For me, I approach this with first of all respect for their point of view. It's different than mine. I try to expose what I know and share what I know in a way that still respects where they're coming from. And and for me, it would be also talking about experience of other folks that have been successful. Try to to kind of get them to expose to as much information as possible and leave something with them that perhaps later on will trigger them to change their mind and maybe consider um, that point of view, because it's really difficult when people are finding themselves as the authority, like I read this on this blog from this person, and I know best. So I don't think that that going people aggressively after them and telling them you're wrong, that's that that's not going to help the conversation, you have to present your point of view and, and respect theirs and try to get something in the conversation that could hopefully get them to consider a different way. Because because it, in a way, it's it's a different form of health literacy. It's like almost like the opposite of health literacy. It's like too much uh, information, making yeah. wrong decisions based on that. I think the other thing, too, is people are so passionate about making sure their child is well, that yes. they'll go above and beyond to do that. And however they're getting that information, that's the information that's in front of them at that time. To your point, we could talk about this for hours and hours. (laughs) Just curious if you have suggestions for resources outside of the Center for Health Literacy through Arkansas. Do we have resources here at Children's? Yes, um, we do. Of course, um, we have um, our patient education materials are always a good starting point. Um, We have a long library that has a lot of information and it's uh, listed in multiple languages. But there's one particular one outside of children's that is my favorite is uh, the AHRQ, Agency for Healthcare Quality Research, and it's um, uh, Health Literacy Universal Precautions. 
And uh, those health literacy universal precautions are something that's accessible on the web. We can even provide the link through the podcast, wherever you posted, um, where you can actually just kind of listen to a lot more expanded information about some of the things we've talked about here. Um, There's also resources that you can find through the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, I believe that the Journal of Pediatric Nursing also may have some articles. So I think it's important to to continue to do this work because it never this this is not the kind of work that will will go away someday. Um, our patients will always come with different needs, um, different abilities, different skills, and ultimately, what we want is for the child to be as well as possible. And with that, it involves parents being able to understand the care instructions that we provide them. And it's going to be critical for us to deliver information to them that makes sense, that they can act on so that it can be effective in the way it's intended to be. And uh, the more we invest our time in providing this uh, education to families in that way, we are, we're, the better the chances for the child to be as healthy as they can be. This has been amazing. I think we covered a lot and more. It's really interesting to listen. Um, you know, you start with health literacy. Just understanding that, you know, it's more than your ability to read the comprehension piece of it too. being open minded uh, and understanding where the family's coming from or where they're at when you start your your, uh, education. So many factors that play a role in this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it starts with having an inquiring mind, like Eva mentioned, non-confrontational. You don't want to intimidate. You don't uh, want to shame. Just keep it very neutral. That was great. Thank you for all the information. I have families. I take care of a lot of the families that are complex medical needs. And they'll tell me stories of how they learn something at Children's and then they go home and a visiting nurse will come in and teach them a completely different way. It's funny. We don't we don't know about patient education only um, when we give it to patients and then we send them off and we don't know what happened afterwards. So it's always nice to, to find out what happened to you when you went home after you received all these mm-hmm. instructions. How do right. you manage the, yeah. the only time I, I think we do see it, Eva, is with readmissions. The readmissions are huge. Like when you see kids bounce back, you know, I'd be curious to look. That was something we can look at. Like I've definitely seen situations where somebody bounced back and, you know, or they bounce back to the ED. We just jump, discharge and we find out four hours later they were back in the ED. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some disconnect with the the education we provided sending them out the door. Yeah. You know, and, and then some people are so literal. I, I have, a, which we asked them to be, right? I have a friend of mine whose son had his wisdom teeth taken out, was put on meds, and the doctor told him to finish the meds. So five days in, where he didn't need the pain meds, he was still taking them because the doctor told him to. And his mom, who is a nurse, was like, how are you feeling? I'm still out of it. She's like, why are you out of it? Are you still taking You're still in pain? He's like, no, but they told me to take them. So right. I mean, it's like even those things, or, or making yeah. them, you know, on the flip of, the following through in the antibiotics, the same thing, but mm-hmm. it's fascinating from that aspect. And again, I, I say, you know, from someone who has medical issues, sometimes I don't even understand what they're saying to me. Mm-hmm. And that to your point, Eva, I think, you know, mentally, am I prepared to be dealing with that piece of information at that time? Maybe not. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of people sometimes in the way their brain is wired. It, that I don't want it to sound so artificial, but but in a way, there are people who think in a different way that's not in the way that we 
especially mm-hmm. us nurses, like we, we in nursing, we, we, I think our brain has already been molded to think in a very linear way, whatever that line is directed to. But then there are people, as you say, that, you know, they hear take the medication twice a day. And because they don't want to forget that they need to take it in the afternoon, they take the two pills in the morning. So that way they had twice a day, they took it twice. So it is very important to also be aware of, of how people learn and think because their interpretation can be very different. Mm-hmm. I can say from the ER, one thing that really drives me crazy is that we have to meet people where they are. And especially if English is not their primary language and we're printing out discharge instructions that the doctor created and say they speak Spanish and I get the discharge instructions in my hand and I'm looking at them and they're in English. And I'm like, but you know, we needed the interpreter the entire time the patient's here. Why did you print these in English? And they're like, oh, right. I know this is the thing you I never I always think it's like am I sounding like I'm beating a dead horse like I'm always on and on about this but it happens stories like that reiterate to me that that there's a need for me to keep doing this in the world because interpreters have mentioned to me that research has been done around this and and it's not that big a difference the time that it takes once you get the interpreter there. I think what happens is in people's minds it's such a task to get another person in the room especially if you have to wait but it's, it's the way hospitals work. We, we don't have, I used to think it's like, there's a little interpreter in a closet. And as soon as you push the button, the interpreter comes out of the, the closet and <laughs> starts talking to people. It's like, they, they don't exist like that. I wish they did, but they don't. So, so mm-hmm. we do have to wait. And there's sometimes when if one clinic is delayed, then the next person gets even more delayed because they're waiting to send a patient home, but the interpreter can't get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably find it in the ED too, Denise, where people are just so impatient we live in a society where people want things immediately anyway. Like Kate brought it up. How many times do you have people going, I got to, I want to go. I want to go. My ride's here. I got to go. I don't want to mm-hmm. be in Boston traffic. And you're trying to teach and all they're focused on is. Yeah. Getting out. Getting out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why yeah. education needs to be started way mm-hmm. before the last day. And yeah. that's where I think continuity of nursing is so important. Not that getting into other conversations, but it's like, if I have five different nurses taking care of me and the nurse on Monday did not start the education, the nurse on Tuesday did not do it, then the one on Wednesday and so forth. And then the one, the last one that's there on the day of discharge is sitting there and like nobody's done any, any teaching with this family. Now it becomes an emergency that they have mm-hmm. to teach and it, it's not as effective as it would have been had it been started several days. Yeah. Before. Right. But one of the, one of the difficult things with that, like I know in the unit, the, the medical world and surgical, I'm sure too, you run into problems. Like, you just on a daily basis, you see how the plan of care changes. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's like this to try to even start education and then you're mm-hmm. uneducating about yeah. something. But the ultimate discharge teaching and the medications, a lot of times that's falling on the oftentimes it falls on the final day. Staff is waiting to understand what the final plan is before they're heading out the door. Mm-hmm. I had a job that that addressed that in my previous life for the Spanish speaking patients. I was the one nurse who kind of followed them every day. I knew what the plan of care was going to be. And I I also had the time, which is the biggest component. That's the difference. Yeah. When you're a staff nurse, you don't have time to spend Mm -hmm. half an hour with a patient to teach them stuff. But if there's somebody whose special role is to do just that, to sit with them every day, to go through stuff with them every day, to see how they're learning every day, it makes a big difference and it takes a burden off a nurse. The problem is many people will argue that, 
by having a single point of failure, meaning that one nurse who does all the education, then none of the nurses get invested into, into mm-hmm. teaching patients. And that's a loss too. So you have to think about balancing that out, but yeah. it's, it's complicated. Yeah. I, again, I think we could talk about this for, for days and I think we should continue this conversation. I think um, definitely for part two, we'll try to find some families to join us at the table and talk more about this. Well, thank you guys so much. This is always fun. I I learned a lot. You gave me tips, which is what we needed. So that's great. Awesome. I'm so glad. This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk podcast.